You can turn your Bible to Matthew's Gospel. Look at chapter 5. We're going to focus on verses 10 through 12 uh, this morning. We will read verses 1 through 12, which are all printed there in the uh, bulletin on the next page. Uh, We're going through Matthew's Gospel. Uh, We've slowed down a bit. At the beginning of Advent, we slowed down to take some time to look at the Beatitudes, which are what are here before us. Uh, This is the introduction to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Uh, And at this rate, uh, we should finish our series in Matthew. Maybe. (laughs) Uh, Matthew's Gospel is about uh, the kingdom of heaven. It's about the kingdom of heaven and its king, who is Jesus. Uh, That word kingdom shows up more than 50 times in this book. Jesus was always talking about it. Uh, Matthew summarizes Jesus' preaching as the good news of the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus uh, starts preaching about the blessed life of the kingdom of heaven in this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, which are chapters 5 through 7 of the gospel here. Uh, The people of Israel had greatly anticipated Christ's coming, uh, the the coming of the everlasting kingdom and the Messiah, the Christ, uh, the king who would inaugurate this kingdom. They greatly anticipated it, but when he came, Jesus turned out to be nothing like what they anticipated. And he talks um, about his kingdom in ways uh, that are nothing like what we would expect. Uh, Everything's topsy-turvy and upside-down in this kingdom. And Jesus begins to explain that to us here in these Beatitudes. And with this last Beatitude that we're going to look at this morning, uh, we will really reach the crescendo of craziness. It's the heights of uh, Jesus' particular kind of madness. Um, So, let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Again, we're going to read through all the Beatitudes here to get the overall sense of what's going on. Let me pray first. Father, your word is good. Everything your son has said is true. We pray that you'd help us to receive it with faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So do you see how this is madness? Uh, How this is crazy talk? I mean, that's how most people view it. That's how even uh, Israel, the people of Israel, took it, right? The, The one group of people who had been especially prepared by God to be ready to receive this Messiah and to receive his message... And especially even the religious leaders who thought they were looking forward to the kingdom of heaven. 
Right? They're, they're thinking, look, we've had enough of cruel oppression in this world. We've had enough mocking of our faith. We've had enough of being the cultural weirdos who stick out like a sore thumb. The kingdom of God is supposed to be where his people are vindicated, not persecuted, vindicated and exalted. Where God's enemies and our enemies are defeated and subjugated. <clears throat> not, you know, allowed any power over us to hurt us. Who would want to have anything to do with a kingdom like this where we're told to rejoice and be glad that we get to suffer persecution? <clears throat> but nobody ever accused Jesus of just uh, sort of going with the flow and telling people what they wanted to hear. Uh, in fact, from a bird's eye view, from a large scale perspective, that's a pretty good description of uh, what Jesus is actually talking about here. The whole world is flowing in one direction. The whole world's going in one direction, <clears throat> and Jesus alone journeys in another dire- direction, the opposite direction, against the flow of the world. The whole world was, uh, has, has chosen to live apart from the one true God, and uh, we sort of have this unspoken agreement about it, all of us, that, uh, you know, if everyone just keep their heads down, carry on with the agenda... Uh, we'll all be rewarded with peace and prosperity, or at least ilu- an illusion of peace and prosperity. But if you get out of line, then you're going to meet a harsh response. <clears throat> and Jesus is the only one who has truly gotten out of line with the world. Who has not only called out the sins and errors of the whole world, but who has proclaimed a vision of the world as it should be, a vision of the true kingdom of heaven under God's gracious rule. He's the only one who's talked like this, the only one who's lived like this. The world wants to live apart from God, and Jesus proclaims the blessed life of the kingdom, which is defined essentially by being life with God, with God. Uh, So, of course, he's going to stick out, and everything he says is going to sound like madness to everyone, but it isn't because he's mad. It isn't because he is mad. He's the only sane one in a world of madness. He's the only righteous one going against the flow of the world of unrighteousness. And if anyone joins him, if anyone's with him, then they're also going to stand out. And they'll also appear to the world to be mad and backwards and wrong, maybe threatening, a threat worth eliminating. When the true people of God open their mouths to speak truth, when the righteous people of God live visibly in this world in ways that testify to his kingdom, to the kingdom of heaven, then it creates a discomfort. It creates uh, tension and friction that uh, those who are just of the world going along with the flow of the world that can't tolerate it for, for very long. No one likes to be confronted with the reality of their sin in God's sight. No one likes to be told they're out of step with the one who's at the heart of reality. No one likes to think that they're wrong or that they're mad. So instead of taking ownership of the real reason they feel out of sorts, you feel out of sorts with God, the reasons here. But instead of taking ownership for that, instead of actually confessing their sin, confessing their guilt, asking God's forgiveness, the world blames whoever it is who's confronted them with their guilt. And ultimately, that means that the world takes out their anger on God. If God is righteous, it makes me feel the pain of my unrighteousness to consider that I've rejected this God, this righteous God. Never mind the fact that I'm the one who's rejected him. Never mind the fact that I'm the one who's become unrighteous. I've I've just got to get rid of God. 
He's the one whose very presence is a constant reminder of my sin. So, <clears throat> when God came into the world in the flesh, there's our opportunity. The world saw its opportunity to rid itself of the one, uh, once and for all, who made us feel uncomfortable about ourselves in ways we didn't like. Jesus' very presence in the world, the only sane one, the only righteous one, the only true one, became an intolerable irritation, so the world persecuted him. Uh, He pointed out that um, this had happened before, whenever God had sent his prophets with his message to convict people of their sins and to call them to repentance, even the people of Israel, who were supposed to be God's own special people, supposed to be God's kingdom. Even they persecuted the prophets God sent to them. God's prophets uh, frequently found themselves in conflict, especially with the false prophets, right? Religious leaders uh, who told people what they wanted to hear, basically. That's what they did. She kept people happy. They satisfied the itching ears of the world, saying, God is on your side. God approves of everything that you're doing. In the same way that all the other spiritual leaders always have, the world's spiritual leaders telling them there's nothing wrong with what they're doing. Nothing wrong with your rebellion against God. Uh, Telling them that they can enter into a privileged spiritual state by doing a little better. Or uh, telling them that they don't need to expect any kind of judgment from God. Telling people what they want to hear. So when God's prophets, the real ones, got out of line with that message and they started proclaiming God's truth about sin and righteousness and justice. And they called people to confess their sins and repent of them. False prophets and the religious leaders got angry and they would hunt them down. And the true prophets even faced official government persecution by God's own people, by the people of Israel. Jezebel persecuted Elijah and the other prophets. Uh, King Jehoiakim killed the prophet Uriah by the sword. Jeremiah was beaten and imprisoned and cast into a cistern. And uh, then he was dragged out and threatened with death by King Zedekiah. And Jewish tradition has it that uh, King Manasseh sawed Isaiah in two. So the prophets uh, represented the true kingdom of God. And they found themselves in conflict with these earthly rulers, even when these rulers were supposed to represent God's kingdom. So those doing the persecution, uh, they would have said that they were the righteous ones. Those doing persecution often pretend that they're the righteous ones, that they're doing God's holy work by killing those who get out of line. That's the kind of persecution we see in the Gospels. The religious leaders pretending they're the ones doing the work of God. Jesus says it himself in John 16. He says, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. They might be convinced that they're doing God's will, but they have nothing to do with the one true God, and they're literally violating his will, literally violating his commandments by killing other people in God's name. They might blame those that they're persecuting. They might say, this is your fault. You're making me do this because you're the one who got out of line. You've given me no choice. These are the lies of the self-deluded who can't stand to be confronted with the truth about their own unrighteousness, uh, with the truth of, about their own madness. And this madness goes all the way back to the beginning. The very first murder was a, a persecution of the righteous. The very first murder was a persecution of the righteous. We read about it in Genesis 4, our Old Testament reading. 
said the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. He was righteous. But the Lord had no regard for his brother Cain or for his offering. And that distressed Cain. And he became very angry because he felt the reality of God's judgment, which he preferred not to feel. God was saying that there was something wrong with Cain by not regarding him or his offering. He's saying there was a distinction between the one that he accepted his offering and between Cain. And every time he looked at his righteous brother, Abel, he was reminded of it until he couldn't take it anymore and he killed him. So the first murder was a persecution of the righteous. 1 John 3 says, Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Simple as that. He had no good reason. You don't murder a righteous person for a good reason. You murder him because his deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Why did they persecute the prophets like Jesus said? Because their, their own deeds were evil and the prophets represented God's righteousness. Why did they put Jesus on the cross and kill him? Because Jesus was the embodiment of God's righteousness. And their own deeds were evil, and that's just what evildoers do. There was nothing wrong with Jesus. Even though that's what they were shouting at him as they killed him, you're wrong. You're out of line. God has forsaken you. Everything was wrong with his enemies who persecuted him. And Jesus has told us that we'll also suffer persecution through our association with him. He says this in John 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, that is, if you were sort of just going along with the flow with everybody else in the world, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll also keep yours. But all these things they'll do to you on account of my name. And he says in John 16, I've said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Right, so if you entrust your life to Jesus, if you bow to him as the Lord of heaven and earth, if you believe his word as God's truth, if you embrace his righteousness and follow him in his ways, if you live with God through faith in Jesus, then you'll join him in a fate like his in this world. If Jesus was persecuted and you're bound to him, why should you expect anything different? So maybe it'll be mild <clears throat> and you'll just be made to feel awkward for being Christian or like you don't belong. You can't really fit in. Um, maybe it'll be stronger than that. Maybe you'll lose some friendships, relationships. Maybe you'll lose work, lose some money, some opportunities. Maybe it'll be severe and you'll be attacked physically um, or have your possessions stripped away or find yourself imprisoned or be forced to watch your family suffer for your profession of faith like so many Christians in the world do even today. Go read Voice of the Martyrs that magazine or Fox's Book of Martyrs. <clears throat> Maybe it won't be strong or even just severe. Maybe it'll be ultimate. And you'll lose your life. <clears throat> but Jesus wanted to make sure that you would expect it. And that you'd be ready for it. 
Paul says in 2 Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Will be. It's inevitable. So, uh, Lord of the Rings, you know, there's this one scene where the fellowship is discussing the idea of actually this crazy idea that we're going to go storm the black gates of Mordor. We're going to take the fight to the Dark Lord Sauron in his own lands, where uh, we'll be vastly outnumbered by bloodthirsty hordes of orcs. And Gimli says, certainty of death, small chance of success. What are we waiting for? You know? Following Jesus means persecution is inevitable. Certainty of death. Why do we do that? Why do, we, why do we follow Jesus if that's what it means? What is this blessing Jesus is talking about here in these Beatitudes? Because Jesus doesn't just say, <clears throat> you know, got to be ready for hard times. He says that those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake are blessed. They're actually happy with God's own happiness. As with other Beatitudes, we have to follow what's actually happening in the sentence structure of them. It isn't just that we're blessed or divinely happy because we're suffering. Uh, as if persecution were a good thing in and of itself. <clears throat> it's that the persecuted are blessed. They're divinely happy because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the reason. <clears throat> and so it really sinks in. Uh, Jesus will say, uh, blessed are you. Not just those who are, that's sort of the generic that he's using for the Beatitudes, but now in verse 11 he says, blessed are you. He wants, he wants to bring it home. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. Falsely, on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. That's why you rejoice, because your reward in heaven is great, because the kingdom of heaven belongs to you. Because so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So we're blessed. We are happy with God's own happiness when we live with God in Christ and suffer for it. Because the kingdom of heaven belongs to us. Because our reward in heaven is great. And this is the reward. It's fellowship with Jesus in sufferings like his. If we suffer persecution on Jesus' account then he says we're in good company. And not just the company of the prophets and the martyrs, but the company of the great prophet, the company of the great martyr, the company of the blessed persecuted one himself. Jesus is the righteous one who suffered at the hands of the wicked. He's the only sane one in this world of madness. He's the only true one in this world of lies. And when we suffer through our association with him, we have our reward in our very association with him. We're blessed to be in such a union, such a fellowship with Jesus, that whatever he endures, we endure. That whatever he suffers, we suffer. That whatever reward he has in heaven for his righteousness and for his absolute faithfulness to God, that reward he shares with us too. The blessedness is in the union. The blessedness, the reward is in knowing Jesus and being so closely associated with him that we share everything. God in the flesh endured persecution And rather than our being found among his enemies, among his persecutors, we're found sharing his life. We're found sharing his life and his experience, the experience of God in the flesh. So Paul talks about this in Philippians 3. He says that the 
this, uh, he's, he's talking about the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, so that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So the the privilege isn't just in sharing Christ's sufferings. It isn't even ultimately in sharing the resurrection of Christ. It's in being found in him. That's the privilege, being found in Christ and in sharing all of life with him and knowing him. That's what the kingdom of heaven is. It's life with God, where you get God. He belongs to you, you belong to him. It's it's where the king and his people dwell together, where relationship with Jesus rules our reality. We want to live with God, and we can, through faith in Jesus. We'll face pressures in this world for exactly that reason, right? Because we want to live with God through faith in Jesus. You find pressures in this world because of that. Because we enjoy a relationship with the King of Heaven by His grace. And because we want to see His gracious and righteous kingdom come. You'll feel pressures in this world just, just for that. So it isn't just a matter of being willing to suffer for that. It's a matter of rejoicing and being glad. Because our suffering like Jesus is actually an indicator that we do in fact have Jesus. So 1 Peter chapter 4 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. So suffering as a Christian, being persecuted for righteousness' sake, as Jesus puts it here, definitely doesn't mean suffering for being self-righteous. Don't let any of you suffer for being an evildoer or any of that. Sometimes we can have a martyr complex in our self-righteousness. Uh, and feel like people are persecuting us, they're after us, just because we're, hey, we're just doing the right thing. Uh, and all of them are just villains who hate what's good, which is clearly what I represent, which is, you know, I represent good, they're evil, right? Um, but Jesus isn't talking about being a goody-two-shoes or pompous or disdainful or self-important or someone who arrogantly condemns other people for their sins. That's not suffering for righteousness' sake. This, that's pretty much the opposite of what Jesus means by righteousness. <laughs> and... Uh, And it would never describe Jesus himself at all. In fact, it was the self-righteous religious people who had Jesus crucified because he was so humble. Because he was so gracious and merciful and accepting of sinners. The self-righteous who would persecute others are opposed to the king of heaven and his kingdom. Self-righteous fit perfectly in this world. They go right along with the flow of the world, which is straight against Jesus. They want nothing to do with Jesus. We see it when they kill him. They want no association with him, and therefore the, the kingdom of heaven does not belong to them. That's why the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is so scandalous, especially the way Matthew presents it. 
sinners expect the kingdom of heaven to belong to them. We feel entitled to it. Demand it. But we demand it apart from God. Demand it apart from God, apart from a relationship with the king of heaven. Sinners are even pretty good at convincing themselves they deserve it. But Jesus, he is the king of heaven. And if you don't want him, then you just don't really want the kingdom. You don't really want the kingdom of heaven because it is his kingdom, however surprising and disturbing that might be to you. But if you want Jesus, you can have him. He's yours. He's given himself to you and for you. If you want him, if you really want him, then you'll not only be willing to follow wherever he leads and to join him wherever he is, you'll delight at that privilege to follow wherever he leads and join him wherever he is. Even though it means facing opposition in his name. For those who belong to Jesus, facing opposition in his name is not a threat. It's not bad news. It only confirms, in fact, that we do belong to him, that he does belong to us. We do know him. We do have fellowship with him. We do live with God through faith in him, really. And that is a comforting thought, don't you think? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we often worry um, about our own ability to remain faithful to you in the face of persecution. Uh, We pray that you would give us such a vision of Jesus that fellowship with him would sustain us, whatever we face in this world. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that even though uh, we were sinners, we were your enemies and your persecutors. You came to associate with us and give us the privilege of relating to you. So we pray that you would help us to fearlessly proclaim your kingship, your kingdom, whether this proclamation is met with acceptance or resistance. We pray that you'd help us to live with you in righteousness rather than apart from you, whether this means we're accepted or rejected by others. We pray that you would help us to testify to your grace, even though it implies a judgment that sinners don't want to hear, that we would need grace like yours. And if we suffer for it, we pray that you would help us to rejoice with your own joy. We pray in your name. Amen.